Hello and welcome to episode number 31 of the Music Plays the Band on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kortz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you all are safe and well. So we're just hitting the road again, and I'm producing most of this episode from a hotel and dressing rooms. Uh, Today we're in Burlington, Vermont, in a hotel room on a day off. Uh, I was able to get the feature interview done just before we left, though. Things are definitely getting better out here, and with everyone, including myself, back to work and traveling again, it's getting a little bit harder to nail down guests and find the time to get it done, but we're going to keep plugging away at this as long as we can. I want to thank everybody who listened to episode number 30 with my drumming partner, Dino English. Honestly, I was overwhelmed with the number of folks who have tuned in and all of the great feedback I've received, so thank you again very, very much. This episode is going to be a complete 180 from that, though. It's an all-Texas kind of day, and although my guest might not be familiar to all of you, he is certainly familiar with and a big fan of the dead. I'm honored to bring along 10-time Grammy winner, founder, and leader of the legendary Western swing band Asleep at the Wheel, the one and only Ray Benson. Ray has been a Dead fan since the very early days, and his and the Dead's career have intertwined more than you might realize. He was home in Austin, Texas when we spoke, and for me it was really educational and a very eye-opening conversation. Staying down in Austin today, we're also going to speak with Joel Fallhaber from Deadeye ATX and find out a little bit more about the scene down there. So as always, I'm glad you're here. And before we get to the first segment, I humbly ask you to support the podcast any way you can. There's the monthly Patreon subscription with giving levels starting as low as $5 a month, which gives you exclusive bonus content, including outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from the road, And this time around, that's going to include some footage of our rehearsal with Bob Weir uh, at the Warfield before our show with him. And you can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all the proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net, and wherever you are listening to the podcast, please rate, like, and review. So here we go. Let's get started. Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. Today, sticking with the Texas theme, we honor Blind Willie Johnson. Blind Willie Johnson was a gospel singer, guitarist, and evangelist. He was born into a family of sharecroppers near Pendleton, Texas in 1897. Very little is known for certain about his childhood, and there are many conflicting legends. We do know that he was given a cigar box guitar at the age of five by his father and immediately took to it. Like most African-American families of the day, they attended church weekly, and Johnson knew that he wanted to be a minister early in life. He was not born blind, and while there are numerous theories on how he lost his sight, it is agreed upon that it happened around the time he was seven years old. At some point, he met another blind musician named Matkin Butler, who had a powerful singing and preaching style that influenced Johnson's own vocal delivery and repertoire. He recorded a total of 30 songs over five sessions beginning in 1927 and ending in 1930. The majority of his songs were holy blues or gospel blues with titles such as Jesus Make Up My Dying Bed, Oh Lord If I Had My Way, which was actually an early version of Samson and Delilah, and the one we'll hear today, Nobody's Fault But Mine. Now if you follow the lineage back, you can find how he came to influence the dead. 
His mastery of the gospel blues style influenced generations of musicians. Uh, one aspect of this was his bottleneck guitar technique, which was immediately influential on Robert Johnson and Howlin' Wolf, both of whom had a large effect on both Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir. Another major player in the dead world that he had an influence on was the Reverend Gary Davis, who took the tune, Oh Lord, If I Had My Way, and turned it into the version of Samson and Delilah that the dead audience is familiar with. Johnson's music has been covered by a wide range of artists, including Led Zeppelin, Sinead O'Connor, Derek Trucks, and the Blind Boys of Alabama, just to name a few. He recorded It's Nobody's Fault But Mine at his very first session in 1927, and The Dead first played it in 1966. Now, they only played it 31 times, but they were spread out throughout their career. It showed up most frequently in 73 and 74, and it popped up about once a year from 77 through 85. We heard it three times in the 90s, usually coming out of space, but today we hear Blind Willie Johnson's original 1927 recording of Nobody's Fault But Mine. Nobody's fault but mine. Nobody's fault but mine. But I don't read my soul, beloved. I have a Bible in my home. I have a Bible in my home. But I don't read my soul, beloved. Hmm. Father, tell me how to read. Father, tell me how to read. My trouble, love. nobody fall but mine. Oh, Lord. Nobody fall but mine. I don't need my trouble, love. I'll I'd like to take a minute and tell you about Beth Kortz. She is a psychotherapist, intuitive clarity coach, and founder of the Authenticity Academy. For the past 12 years, she has been supporting her clients to fully embody their authenticity and create the life they desire with her three-step clarity coaching program. This is your time to gain clarity, defining yourself by who you really are and not what you do. Increase your confidence by activating your inner powers and take soul-led action, creating a life in alignment with your purpose, passion, and desires. Are you ready to learn more? Then book a free 30-minute clarity call with Beth. Visit www.yourclarity.coach or the sponsor page of themusicplaystheband.net. I know she's looking forward to supporting you on your journey. In today's segment of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every time, we're going to start off our conversations from Texas with Joe Fallhaber of Deadeye ATX. Okay, good morning. How is everybody? I'm still in Burlington, Vermont, in my hotel room, and I'm talking today with Joe Fallhaber of Deadeye from Austin, Texas. They're keeping it alive down in Austin. How are you? Doing well, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure and very nice to meet you. Turns out after talking, we've got a lot of mutual friends. That's right, man. It's nice. So, uh, no surprise, right? Really. Right, right. <laughs> so Deadeye, Deadeye down in Austin. Can you give me a brief rundown on your history, how you got started and everything? 
Well, uh, to be honest, uh, we, uh, the drummer and I actually started the band about, it's now about 11 years ago, uh, and we were at a Dark Star or, uh, Orchestra show at Stubbs. Right. And uh, <laughs> yeah, That's awesome. we, uh, we looked around and we were like, wow, they sold out Stubbs, you know, nobody's <laughs> playing Grateful Dead music right now, really, in, in Austin. And uh, we decided, you know, we would... I mean, that's that's all we talked about, and that was something that we loved a lot. It was Grateful Dead music. We were already kind of playing a few dead tunes in our uh, original band at the time, and we were like, let's let's give it a go and just see what happens. And uh, the the first gig we kind of threw together was we had, a, you know, two, three hundred people show up, and it was a total, uh, you know, insane party, and we, we were like, oh, my God, we got to do this, you know, so... It was kind of timing, and uh, y'all inspired us. You know, we we're like, "Wow, <laughs> we can fill a room. Let's see, let's see if we can make something work." You know, and you know, uh, ten years later, and and a few changes uh, personnel-wise, and and we're kind of where we wanted to be. You know, that's so. fantastic. So, are all are, are, are all the guys in the band Deadheads? Oh, absolutely! Right Very on. hardcore. Very and hardcore. What's your instrumentation? Um, so I play guitar and sing. I do all the, the Jerry Garcia stuff. And then, uh, our drummer sings the Bobby tunes. And then we have, uh, a bass player and we've got a guitar player that just plays the Bob stuff. And, uh, and an incredible, uh, keyboardist, uh, Trevor Nealon is, is a good friend from the band Heathens. That's all, man. I'm, I'm wow. I'm honored. That's very, very cool that, that we were. Yeah, y'all definitely uh, lit the you. spark. No doubt about it, for sure. And and how often are you guys playing down there? Man, we do like in Austin. We try to do a monthly thing. We try to keep it regular. Um, and then we we do little regional stuff. You know, we don't really get out of Texas. We've done a little. We did a little Colorado run a few years ago, but uh, it's it's pretty much a regional thing, like Houston. A little bit of Dallas and you know San Antonio, that kind of stuff. Right on. And when but you our do main that, thing is Austin and, and probably Houston, you know. Yeah. Do you guys cover? Do you cover all parts of the catalog? Do you stick to specific eras? Do you cover? Do you run the gamut on the tunes you play? Yeah, you know, our our only rule is if the dead did it, we can do it. You know, so that's it. We had to, you know, you got to have some parameters, right? I mean, you don't want to just uh, be too crazy, so. Um, yeah, we, we, we're all over the map and, um, we're trying to get to everything. I mean, it's, we, we actually hired a, uh, our, our guitar player is relatively new. He's been with us for about a year or two now. So we're still kind of, you know, getting in there, but we've, you know, we've gotten through a lot of the stuff and, uh, you know, the big thing with this band is it's kind of like, we're always like pushing ourselves and challenging ourselves. Like this is kind of the band I always dreamed of having as as a kid you know like people that are all in it you know 100 percent. so we're always challenging each other and and trying to play you know as much material as possible you know to to keep it fresh you know right so. on man do you when you when you tackle these new songs or just maybe some of the more difficult ones any of it really does do you take a specific approach to interpreting it and performing it how do you all go about your approach to the music I would say we we usually will kind of like pick a if not an era like maybe a version and kind of start from there you know a lot of the tunes kind of eventually will evolve or we'll just start bringing in elements from 
you know, just stuff that we dig, you know, and, and make sure it works. But I don't know, we, we kind of concentrate on, you know, specifics early on and then things sort of, you know, uh, blossom out of that. You know what I mean? So it's nice to have something, maybe even just like a specific performance to try to like hone in on. And then we stretch out from there, you know? Yeah. Man, Austin, I mean, one of the greatest music cities in the world. Um, every genre of music you can think of is down in Austin. Not a huge hotbed of Grateful Dead activity. You know, the dead really didn't come around there very often, if at all. But on the occasions we've been there, we always have great crowds at Stubbs, like you were talking about. You decided, hey, let's try this. And 200, 300 people show up the first time. So yeah. obviously, there's a bigger dead scene there than people realize. What can you tell us about the Austin dead scene and how it fits in with the huge, with the bigger music scene there? Well, I would say, you know, a lot of the people are, you know, just kind of like jam band fans in general, you know, and, and a lot of people move to Austin. Um, you know, I would say more music fans move to Austin, you know, the musicians for sure, you know, uh, but there are, you know, people move here to listen to, to go see live bands, you know, right. and that's, that's like a huge part of their life. And so that's who these people are, you know, they're deadheads, but they're also just fans of all kinds of music. And, um, you know, so that's, that's kind of the animal, you know, they're just folks that they're, they're going to go out two, three times a week and catch as much stuff as they can. They travel a lot, you know? Um, and there's, there's definitely like a core kind of crew right? that, you know, which I'm sure is normal, you know, with a lot of, uh, of scenes, but, um, we have a great kind of core crew and actually they, these folks have, have really floated us, especially, you know, the last few years during this kind of insane time that we've been dealing with. Um, we had some friends that, that built a stage out kind of at, on a friend's property. And, you know, we were, we were throwing these little parties all through, all through the pandemic, just these, you know, little playing these little outdoor shows to like 30 of our, you know, our best buds and, and best fans who are kind of just keeping the, helping us keep the like creative juices flowing and, you know, just kind of awesome. keeping it going, you know, like they really helped us and helped us through a, a little bit of a transitional uh, period personnel wise, you know, and now we're, we're better for it. So we, we've got a great crew of people here. They're very supportive. And uh, yeah, I got to say it's, it really feels like, it really feels like something special, you know, something you kind of, as a kid, you know, think about and dream about. <laughs> I mean, you know, it would be great if this band could, uh, you know, totally support us. But but uh, what it is and what it does for us is it's really hard to, uh, you know, quantify. It's it's a uh, it's a beautiful thing, man. So right on. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. What what is it about this music? in your mind what is it about this music that creates this community this subculture what 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 does it you know i you know i think about that all the time i think it's i think it's different for a lot of people you know it's kind of obviously a generational thing i think with people like me and 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 older i guess you know i, I got to see the grateful dead a couple times when i was 17 i saw them in 94 95 obviously you know that was a strange era but but for me it, it it was just it changed my life forever you know and i i think for a lot of people it's 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 a lot it has a lot to do with memory 
<clears throat> and and having these experiences that are so powerful and um not necessarily trying to recreate that but just tap into that memory you know like i had this transformative experience seeing this band you know and uh i just want to go see that music and be around people that enjoy that music and just maybe feel that in some way again you know kind of communicate with that memory you know yeah man and you know i think the young kids the younger kids uh that didn't get to experience that stuff they're curious you know what i mean i think they they're like sniffing around and they're kind of like what you know what is this thing you know it's different I, I don't really know how to describe it. It's a tough one, man. It's a, it's a, you know, and that's the cool thing about that question. I'll get from all the different people I talk to so many different answers on so many different levels. And then so many times I'll get the, I really can't quantify it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, I, I get it, man. Well, but I loved yeah. your answers. It was great stuff. And I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you guys keeping it going in Austin. And I'm honored yeah, that you could be part of the inspiration that helped you put it together and want to keep it going down there so thank you so much man absolutely no y'all were a huge part of it absolutely man again thank you for being here today So we lost our connection at the very, very end there, so we didn't get to say our goodbyes, but that was Joe Fallhaber from Deadeye in Austin, Texas. If you like what you're hearing today, including that little bit of Deadeye that we heard just coming out of there, please consider supporting the podcast with a contribution. We have two ways for you to do this. You can become a patron with a monthly subscription for as little as $5 a month that includes expanded video versions of our segments, all of the outtakes that don't make it onto the podcast, videos from home and on the road, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal, and part of every contribution goes to the Rex Foundation. You can do this and learn more about the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. And if you have the time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever player you might use. Thanks for your continued support and helping to spread the word about the podcast. It's uh, getting bigger and bigger every week, and I really appreciate your help. Our feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. Grateful Sweats' subtle song designs will strike a chord for heads who get it. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy for a wide selection of cold weather gear like hoodies, beanies, and of course sweatpants, as well as other grateful goodies with more than 30 designs like Tennessee Jed, Women Are Smarter, and my personal favorite, Eyes of the World. Visit etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats or get there from the sponsor page at our website. And right now, if you use the code the music plays, you save 10% and receive a free pin. So don't miss out and don't miss out on the clearance section with items up to 80% off. As soon as you're done listening today, head on over to Grateful Sweats for some great deals. My feature conversation stays down in Texas where we talk to Ray Benson of Asleep at the Wheel. The Wheel has been keeping the legend of Bob Wills and Texas swing music alive for over 50 years now. They have 10 Grammy Awards and countless other honors to their credit. And Ray's first exposure to the dead came back in the 60s, and his and the band's path crossed with the dead on many occasions. It was really cool getting a perspective from someone who comes from a different genre, but there are many similarities between the styles as well. So here you go. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the one and only Ray Benson.
Okay, so I am here today with Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel. How are you, sir? Good, thank you. Good, thank you. Doing good. Dark Star Orchestra, this is going to be November the 27th, 1975. Is that right? Is that the, Don't y'all do don't, <laughs> yeah, don't y'all do shows yeah. from the date? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, that's in, that's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, no, you guys are great. I've seen uh, your uh, uh, YouTube stuff. Pleasure to meet you, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. Uh, Asleep at the Wheel, yeah, I know you recently celebrated your 50th anniversary. Congratulations for that. Yeah, it's quite a quite a number. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and you had a tour that went along with it. You brought back some old friends. Can you can you tell me a bit about that tour and how it was playing so with some of your your original and your past members? Oh, it was just it was great. You know, we had uh, Chris O'Connell and Leroy, and uh, unfortunately, Lucky, who uh, started the band with me, could not make it because they wouldn't let him out. Well, they let him out of Australia, but they didn't know if they let him back in. Right. So the three vocalists, uh, Leroy Preston, Chris O'Connell, and myself. So that was that was magic because uh, it was just a vocal blend. It was um, you know that uh, special, and uh, hadn't sung together for oh gosh since nineteen seventy seventy eight or so. Um, and then Tony Garnier, he let Bob Dylan let him off, so he got to play bass with us for about a week and a half that was pretty cool that's awesome and now that was during the pandemic that was right before before omicron hit yes exactly we snuck in on october of of uh 2021 i mean 20 uh uh yeah and uh so it was very fortunate because uh we wouldn't have got it done and uh so it was uh Anyway, it's great. We went from California all the way, you know, we did the uh, Kennedy Center. We did Mountain Stage uh, from the Kennedy Center. We did uh, the Grand Old Opry in Nashville, um, you know, and had just great shows all the way across. That's fantastic. And now with things starting to calm back down, you guys are pretty much back on the road, hitting it again. Yeah, yeah, it's a little different, but uh, certainly back on the road. We just did a cruise. uh, uh and uh, the outlaw music crews, you know, with Emily Lou Harris, Rodney Crowell, et cetera, and uh, Steve Earle. Uh, and it was, uh, everybody had to be vaccinated and tested before they stepped on the boat. So that was interesting. It took forever. Right. Right. Uh, but uh, that went great. And then we played some shows in Florida last week and we'll, uh, we'll hit the road. South by Southwest, the music festival happens down here. So we'll be here for that. Yeah. Excellent. Now, I, I know you've told the story, the history of Asleep at the Wheel a million times. So I'm more interested to hear about how you, Ray Benson, got started. I know you grew up in Philadelphia, but how, how did your musical journey begin? Well, I grew up in the suburbs of Philly, uh, Springfield, Montgomery County, where it was actually. And it was like, uh, you know, leave it to Beaverville. You know, it was uh, it was the, uh, the 50s. And uh, and uh, so it was. Uh, you know, a suburban, uh, brand new suburban development. So all the, everybody had a GI loan and it was, um, one of the first religiously integrated neighborhoods that back then, you know, when my parents grew up in the, in the thirties and forties, it was religiously segregated, you know, Jews lived here, Catholics lived here, Poly, you know, et cetera. So it was very much, um, homogeneous there was all white people we didn't have any black people but it was all white people but there was a mixed religions which was 
I guess, different from predecessors. So we just, you know, it was leave it to Beaver, like it says, and Davy Crockett and Roy Rogers. And, and uh, we lived in an area that was very rural. And so we got to ride horses and, and everything. And so we, so when I was nine, my sister was taking guitar lessons and I picked up her little four string guitar and taught myself uh, how to play it. And so we formed a group with the other students that she was with and uh, we started singing folk music in 1960, 61. We were called the four G's and we got our, uh, what you call it? We, got, you know, ordered our uniforms out of the uh, Sears catalog and, and uh, had gut string, nylon string guitars, Goya guitars. And we sang folk music. We sang This Land is Your Land. We did Peter, Paul, and Mary songs. We did the Limelighters. We did Woody Guthrie. We did uh, Pete Seeger, you know. And we were very cute, obviously. And uh, and uh, we would play at senior citizen centers. And and then in 1961, or maybe it was 62, I'm not sure, uh, we played with the Philadelphia Orchestra for 5,000 people at this um, young people's concerts. And that's when I realized, you know, I didn't get nervous. And I just, I, I remember walking out on that stage and 5,000 people and just doing what, and it seemed very normal to me. <laughs> so uh, through high school, then I took up, uh, started playing in bands, rock bands. And, and uh, then I played in some square dance bands. I, I swear I got into fiddle music. Uh, my parents uh, sent me to a camp, a summer camp uh as opposed to a uh, summer camp for jewish kids this was a quaker camp <laughs> and they had a square dance band and they said you play guitar come on and they had some great old-timey fiddlers and so i started learning about country music and then in the uh ninth grade um they gave me lessons on the bass and because my mom said hey go learn how to play the bass she said, I know musicians are always looking for a bass player. <laughs> right. And so I went and uh, the school gave me upright bass and lessons and I was in the orchestra and then I would play gigs on the weekend. I could read. I was a reader. And they said, hey, you can read bass clef. You're big. We need a tuba player. Do you play a fall sport? I said, no, no, I'm a basketball player. And so I learned how to play the tuba. They gave me lessons and I got pretty good and played in the orchestra, played in a band and then took a lesson with the Philadelphia orchestra guy. And he said, you're pretty good. You're going to study. I said, nah, I, you know, I think I can get more girls with a guitar. Right. <laughs> a tuba." Now, when, when you're from that time, when you're nine years old and moving up, are you teaching yourself? Are you taking lessons? Or are you all self-taught at that point? First I was self-taught and then they gave me lessons. Um, but they were, you know, and they were just starting points, you know? Yeah. There were great starting points. You know, the first guy was uh, George Britton. He, he taught uh, folk music, basically. Because folk music was big, 60, 61, 62, 63. It was big. I mean, it was, big, uh, you know, the Case and Trio were a pop act, you know. And uh, so anyway, you know, I got, I just, uh, and then a guy, I took lessons from a local guitar teacher, Bob Zatzman, and he uh, he gave me the Mickey Baker jazz book, you know. And that's gay started me out learning jazz chords. And, and of course, you know, I had already, uh, 
learned the Chuck Berry stuff. You know, I was the first, you know, was playing. Well, actually, Lonnie Mack and this, my hero is, I got to be good friends with him later on, but uh, Lonnie Mack and Chuck Berry was, you know, that, that was my rock and roll roots. And uh, of course, the Beatles came along and all the Rolling Stones and those, you know, all that. And uh, But I had a very broad musical, you know, palette. So as you know, I grew up with a lot of very legendary jazz players, uh, the Brecker Brothers and uh, uh, my cousin Mark, who's a, still a fabulous, uh, Mark Copeland, he's a fabulous postmodern jazz piano player. So I, 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 you know, and, and the schools were great because they had bands and everything. So I was in the marching band, the orchestra, and everything, and uh, the choir. I just wanted to sing and play. You know? So, so you're exposed to all of it, all the different styles, all the different instruments, all the different genres. Uh, two weeks ago, I had my friend Peter Rowan on the show, and my question to Peter had to be, "How does a kid from Connecticut end up loving bluegrass?" So here, same thing. How does a kid from Philadelphia? end up loving Western swing and the music of Bob Wills? Well, it started with love of country music, you know, and sort of went backwards from there, you know? So, uh, I love Bob Dylan and, and the burrito brothers and, uh, and that sort of thing. And, uh, learning country music through Buck Owens and, 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 uh, Merle Haggard and Hank Williams. Uh, then if you have a, jazz sensibility it leads you right to bob wills and all the other great uh you know and and also like i'm a collector so I, we collect um um 78s you know so and so we would always grab all 78s and you know, so, oh well that's that's how we learned how to play all that stuff i still i got over 10 78s and, and 45s wow yeah, uh, it's it's. I, I told my kids. I said that's your problem when I die because get <laughs> getting rid of all these. Uh, it's impossible. You know, they're not. You know, some of them are very valuable, and some of them just nobody gives a shit about them. So, uh, but it, to me, it was the history of popular music, and so I just always enjoyed uh, the old records. Um, but yeah, you know, it's like uh, you got to learn. Um, uh, and then, okay, and then in 1969, I was going to be a filmmaker, and then I decided, no, I'm not going to. I went to New York and worked for Eli Landau, a famous guy, and uh, worked on a I love documentary films, so I was going to be a documentary filmmaker. Went to New York City and worked for a very famous guy. I was going to be an editor and uh, director and just said, no, go, i got to go play. Um, and that's when I started to sleep at the wheel. Um, but it... And again, it was not to form a Western swing band, not at all. No, we wanted to do, quote, roots American music. And that was honky-tonk music, uh, country blues, um, uh, real country music, you know, um, Buck Owens. What was it about that music that was so attractive to you? I mean, you're listening to all these different genres. Why does that one pull at your heartstrings? Because I was a singer and a guitar player and and a songwriter. So first and foremost... If you're a singer songwriter who plays guitar, well, country music is that's where you live. I mean, because it's all about lyrics, music, and guitar picking. You know, I love the Love and Spoonful. They were one of my favorite groups in, in, in you know, for eighth, ninth, tenth grade. And, and what an incredible guy. You know, the, the, that's kind of the, the, the prototype of like John Sebastian, you know, same thing. He, he was, you know, his father was a, 
the classical harmonica virtuoso. Um, and so he's, again, when your ears are open um, to music and you're a singer and a creator songwriter, you know, um, it always leads you to uh, the great Nashville and country music. And not just Nashville, but the great country music, because that's where words and music really um, came together. Um, so that's the country music part. And then what Western Swing gave us was the the ability to to improvise and play jazz and blues. You know, right, right. Uh, w- the The wheel comes together in 1970, but that's on the East Coast at first, correct? West Virginia. In West Virginia, eventually you all end up in North Northern California in the Berkeley area. How does, how does that come to be? Well, I went to Antioch college, you know, Ohio, uh, out of high school, Ed Ward, who was, uh, the late Ed Ward, who was uh, a writer for uh, Rolling Stone at the time was teaching a course at, and was a student at, uh, Antioch and he booked commander Cody and his lost planet airman to play. And, they hung out and we became good friends. And, uh, I said, I'm going to go start a band. And they said, well, call us when you do. <laughs> so I did. And that was in 1969 and, uh, and in the summer of 69. And so, uh, after I got through, uh, deciding not to be a filmmaker and, and, and left New York, I called lucky up who was my childhood buddy and cohort and said, come on, we're going to start a band. And then we took a trip up to uh, visit my sister who was going to school in Boston and Leroy, who was a farm boy from uh, Vermont was their roommate. And we started jamming and I said, Hey, we're going to start a band and you want to join? Sure. <laughs> okay. So that's how it all came about. And uh, lucky found this farm in West Virginia that these friends of his were caretaking and said sure you can move out there's this 180 uh, year old cabin and you can all stay there and help us with some of the little farm work that we do <laughs> i said well okay <laughs> and it was just all this uh, circumstance and that's how we wound up in west virginia and and then eventually you get to to berkeley because commander cody comes a call and says come on out when you're ready yeah yeah we had started uh, uh the weirdness of it all is kind of funny but you know, we're living on this farm and trying to put a band together in the middle of nowhere. Just me, Lucky, and Leroy, my brother, was hanging out with us. And all of a sudden, in the, literally in the middle of nowhere by the Potomac River, uh, these two hippie buses show up. And they were headed to Washington, D.C. And there was the hog farm with Wavy Gravy and these guys. And they were called the Medicine Ball Caravan. And they were going into DC to play and they'd heard there was a bunch of hippies with a band. And we said, uh, yeah, that's us not telling them that we really didn't have a band, <laughs> but we were going to be one for sure. And they said, well, come on, you can open the band for stone grand, uh, stone ground, hot tuna and Alice Cooper. And I called my brother up and, and this uh, bass player and we put together some songs and went down and played and that got us a foothold in Washington, DC. <laughs> being with commander cody i mean his band blends country swing and, and psychedelic rock so that whole vibe is happening and well, it was rockabilly more rockabilly they were an incredible rockabilly kind of band was when you get out to california with that and, and start hanging with them are the dead on grateful dead on your radar by then at all 
Oh, hell, I saw the dead in uh, 1968. In 68. At, at the uh, electric factory. There were 200 people. It was Pigpen was still in the band, and uh, Jerry come off the stage. Back then, there wasn't a lot of back rooms. And, and I shook his hand, and uh, I, I said, hey, you got a cigarette? And he gave me a pack of Pell-Mells. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, I, of course, and then Sleepy Dwell's first big gig after the, the Alice Cooper Hot Tuna thing, we opened for the new Riders of Purple Sage in 1970 at Georgetown University. And Jerry was in the band then, and uh, he was so nice, man, wonderful man, just a, just a great guy. And, you know, he encouraged us and, he said, I told him what we were doing. And he said, oh, you're woodshedding. I said, yeah, yeah, we're woodshedding, <laughs> which was an old term for, you know, you'd go to the woodshed to practice, you know. Right. And uh, so he was just great. And uh, and then we opened for Poco. No, we opened for Poco the week before. That was it. And, you know, Jim Messina was great. And it was the, and Richie Furry and all those guys. And so I had a back, yeah, I could get backstage. And so the next week the new riders were playing. So I went to, to hang out and that's where I met Jerry. Right on. Did, did, what was it when you first saw them in 66, what was the impression? What, what was your thoughts? Oh, 68, 1968. I'm sorry. The electric Fact, 68. What's your impression when you see this band? Oh, I love the dead. The, the first album, you know, that's, you know, what this was, uh, you know, I bought the first album in 67. So, um, they were great they you know that that, that original band with pig pen was kind of like an r&b rock psychedelic r&b rock band you know it was more of an rb r&b kind of thing and they were great i saw janice with big brother and the holding company they were amazing they're incredible you know i missed hendrix because my parents wouldn't let me out of the house i had a final the next day or something but yeah uh, the dead were one of my favorites i mean and then, of course the new riders and uh you know, I got to be friends with David and, 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 uh, what's his name? <laughs> Named after the hey, buddy Mar Marmaduke. Yeah. Oh, Marmaduke. Right. Um, as you guys get out to California now, you, you know, the dead in, in 70, are you, are you in California in 1970? 71, 71. So you get out there just a little bit after working man's dead and American beauty had been released. Um, those two, I mean, are such a departure from, the, the psychedelic part of the dead, did that appeal to you more a little bit more, that, that Americana kind of thing they started to do? Absolutely. Just we realized also was that's a, that's who we had to not compete against, but that's, we had to reckon with. Um, and that's when we sort of went, well, maybe we don't, maybe we should just go to Nashville and try to sneak in the back door because, uh, at that point, you know, so that was the decision. No, I love the guys. But we realized that that was not going to be our path. You know, it was not going to be a hippie rock band. This, we were going to sneak in to Nashville. Uh, even though we were uh, Jewish hippie uh, suburban kids, we were going to go make it in, in, in that world. And we were better suited to play that kind of music than jam band music. You know? So did hearing how they interpreted the country stuff, did that have an influence on the way you interpreted the music or did it like you were saying did it totally send you the other direction to no, yeah it was, yeah no, it was just, no i'm not gonna try to be the grateful dead you know or crosby stills and nash or though you know or james taylor those were the three that i think uh really you know distinguished 
for us that kind of music and went no no we're we're we're, uh, we're going to be like buck owens or and that led us to bob wills you know and and whatnot but the the band the original band was no we would do porter wagner songs we would do um but we were not going to be a jam band no you know that was that was it i love the guys you know but again uh, the most important thing you can do is be your own self you know and so was, that was the whole idea you know it's don't uh one of the things you know the wheel and the dad both took influence from all kinds of forms of american roots music and and have really been an integral part of keeping that traditional music alive do you feel that connection that parallel between asleep at the wheel and the grateful dead well, I do because, because like I said, my interaction with those guys was, was always positive and, 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 and enlightening, you know, I mean, I remember Bob, Weir used to do El Paso for crying out loud. Still you know? does it. Yeah. I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> it's like, um, uh, you riders going to miss me when I'm gone, all those kind of stuff and all of the folk stuff that, you know, I mean, you know, we also played with old in the way, uh, we played with them, uh, uh, with the original one, which was John Kahn and, uh, Jerry and, uh, uh, David and, uh, Vassar Clements. Right. And, and, uh, before Peter, uh, was Peter ever part of that band? Oh yeah, know. he sure was. Yeah. yeah he's, yeah. he's the one on the album. Yeah. But he was, he wasn't in the band for that first. Uh, At the beginning. You're right. He wasn't. And then he came yeah. on, like I said, he was with me two weeks. So he actually played with my band just about, about three weeks ago um sat in with us in san francisco so he came in he's on the album he played the bulk of the shows but he was not there at the very beginning which sounds yeah, like no, he was with bill monroe when i first uh, uh, heard about him um and uh we used to play with monroe i used to uh, share a bill with him uh, uh, you, you know and all that so uh, you know so yeah all these guys um but no the dead was like i said we understood that was not our path you know uh and uh um, but in terms of influences, of course, because we were long haired dope smoking, you know, uh, ex hippies. And in Nashville, that was a no, no. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk to like, Jerry, let's you mentioned Bob as well. They have such unique playing styles. When, when you see them, how would you describe their playing styles? And does that have any influence on you? Oh, Jerry was a master. I mean, he was, he was, uh, you know, his stuff is like you say, it's original. It's, you know, no, nobody else plays like that. Um, it's uh, improvisational obviously. And, uh, and great. You know, the thing about bands is, um, it's like making soup. And so like, you know, uh, Bob, Weir ain't the best guitar player, the best singer or nothing, but he, he's perfect for that band you know he's, he's like uh, it, it, it's like i say whatever the chemistry is between bob jerry uh anyway and, and you know like i say it's like i say the, this is a sound and they're incredible you know it's none of them are polished except really jerry is i mean he's so original he, but together they're they're a sound and and it's incredible you know i mean um so anyway, that's what personalities are all about. And then I, I mean, I, like I produced a record on, uh, um, Rob Wasserman and Rob had that band with, uh, rat dog with, uh, yeah, rat dog with Bobby. 
with Bob and boy, he had all the old, that old piano player from the Chuck Berry. Yeah. And Johnny Johnson, Johnny Johnson, man, coolest stuff, man. You know, so, you know, what can I say? You know, there's, those guys are great. And of course, Jerry, uh, you know, brought pedal steel, uh, to the masses, you know, and b- b- between the, uh, new riders and between the Crosby stills and Nash, you know, teach your children, uh, cut. And, you know, he was so important to, introducing rock musicians to uh, i mean rock bands to to the pedal steel you know right i would say that although the dead's brand of music and western swing are very very different genres one commonality is the room to improvise and you touched on improvisation a a little while ago Uh, but within that context the big difference is that with the western swing the pulse and the groove kind of have to remain the same to keep it danceable so can you talk a little bit about your approach to a tune from an improvisational standpoint? Well, it's just all about chord structure, you know? Um, and I, I live by a quote that Johnny Gimble told me, uh, which was Bob Wills advice to the new band members. He says, now, when it's your time to play, play everything, you know, <laughs> and then he paused for a moment and he said, and if you want to play the melody, that's good too. Right. <laughs> Right. So that's, that's where I'm at. I mean, I'm going to play everything I know how to play and I just might play the melody too. Is, are you able to leave it open-ended for soloing or does it have to stay within a structure? Uh, the structure is always there, but the soloing can continue in any way, shape or form. Yeah. You know, and, and you let the guys in the band take it out as much as they want, or do you keep, is, is there a, is there a limit to how far you can go with, with the music that you're playing? Yes. Yeah that's part of the thing is that uh, there was the other difference is that I said, you know, a narrow view uh, of music enables you to uh, go deeper into it, you know? So, yeah. So extended long solos, uh, no, um, but you know, multiple solos. Yeah. Right. Right. And, 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 today's, in today's day and age with, with all the different forms of music are all combined now. So there's, it's not just we don't have country fans and we don't have rock fans. We have music fans because fans now can hear everything and they gravitate towards multiple genres. How much is, if any, is there any crossover that you see amongst the wheel fans and the deadheads? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, I learned this many years ago, the great record uh, record store called tower records. Uh, and back in the seventies and eighties, it was, you know, that's where you bought your records probably. And they did a survey and they, they said, after you bought your records, uh, they would say, what, what do you consider yourself? A country music fan, a rock and roll fan, an R and B fan, a classical, you know, and all these different things. And they put all of this data together and they said, you know, the 40% of them like pop pop music, thirty uh, percent like rock music, forty uh, percent, you know, etc. And then there was this thing called twenty percent of the people who bought records were what they called seekers, and they bought all genres. Not only that, but they bought more records than any other genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was the thing, seekers they called them. And I remember Lucky's dad, who was an old record collector, Lucky played steel with us, you know, and started the band and thought up the name. 
And his dad always said, oh, you know, he collected uh, jazz records and, and stuff. He said, there's always, you know, a group of folks who pointed a solo and go, did you hear the so-and-so solo on that song? Oh, man, you know, as opposed to most people just know, you know, they listen to music rather, uh, you know, ephemerally as opposed to digging deep into the, you know, what's right. there. Do you guys ever find yourselves performing for the jam band crowds? Um, no, no, we have not, not that we wouldn't, but, uh, you know, we did, well, we did a tour with Dylan. Yeah. And went over great. Yeah. Went over wonderful. Right after, in fact, it was right after Bob Weir had done it. He, he, he had been, Weir had been opening the Dylan shows. How would you compare that style crowd to a more traditional country audience? Um, they all applaud. <laughs> <laughs> you know they all applaud i don't know i i do i do less talking more playing really yeah just because you feel they want to hear that their 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 ear is more to the music yeah well it's the you know the, the the yeah it's you know that's like you know that's just the way i approach it and i think it works a whole lot better you know they don't want to hear a bunch of, of talking whereas the country crowd is they expect you to interesting stuff yeah and see that the, the jam band crowd is 100 or 180 degrees the opposite because most of the bands don't say a word we come out we play our music right. we walk off that's the stage right. that's you know? exactly right yeah. and i know that because i was, I was gonna you know it's you know, hey how you all doing it no that ain't gonna work you know <laughs> it's just uh, you know say howdy and uh, uh, might might name the songs we're playing you know Right. And with the jam band crap with bands, you know, that the genre that we play in, you'll get a good evening and a good night. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they want. So right you know, I can, yeah, that's, that's the difference for sure. And you know, better than anybody, but the, the dead community is, is exactly that. And it's, um, it's, I, I tell, I would, I, I used the other day, I told somebody we were talking about, it, and I always said, Hey, music uh, bands, we're just the soundtrack for mating. You know, said, and I said, Grateful Dead folks, they go to a Grateful Dead show. Sure, they love the music, but they go because the people there are their people. They can, they can, maybe they're going to meet a girl or maybe they'll be able to score some safe drugs or maybe, you know, they feel safe in this community. And uh, it's, it's something that is, um, I said, it is really uh, shows the human beings really need this tribal sense of, of, of belonging to something yeah you know and uh the the the, the dead somehow provided that over a, uh, 60 years or and 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 continue to live on you know yeah uh, it's I, I see it every week you know every show we do and it's amazing when the show is over and a group of 20 will get together for their family photo that they take at every show their 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 family yeah you know it's uh and it's uh it's uh very affirming and it's uh it's it's such a great thing so asleep at the wheel you guys have put out by my count what i was able to find out 26 studio albums who knows how many live discs 10 grammy awards you've been able to sneak in a few solo albums over the years that is just a ton of songwriting and i'm i'm, I'm sure your inspiration comes from many places but do robert hunter or john barlow have any influence as songwriters on what you do I really respect their stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely. You know, as a, uh, as a lyricist, he's fantastic. I mean, that's the hardest part of, to me, you know, I can write melodies and chords all day, literally, 
you know, but having something to say and whatnot. And as opposed, there's literal and there's poetic, you know, or so those are the two things. So do they have an influence? No, I, I try not to be influenced by any songwriter except for from a musical st- from a you know the melody chord change standpoint um lyrically i try to I, I found out that i'm just it's 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 what comes out of my brain so try to emulate or i'm trying not to be influenced by anybody because then you're you're just second best anyway i just admire their stuff and 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 uh if there's something to learn from them it's usually admiration for how they use words you know well then my question would be where and i don't know if you can answer but with the a massive output of songwriting that you've had where does your lyrical inspiration come from does it come from topical things or does it come from st- telling stories you know oh some- yeah no it's this from everywhere it's from listening to people's conversations it's uh, watching television and hearing something and oh let me write that down no i'm sitting here uh, amidst a uh, piles of papers with scribbles on them you know that's where that's where it is that the stuff pops in your head and then of course now that i've got these these iphones and stuff you know just talking to the iphone or singing to the iphone okay this is you know fragments i just work in fragments very rarely do i ever sit down and write a whole song it does happen and that's quite a gift um but usually i'm just finishing up you know, something that I started 12 years ago or something, you know, just wading through piles of paper going, what was that idea? Oh, or, or voice messages. I used to have a cassette thing and I was talking to it. You know, to me, it's, uh, a lot of times I'm driving along in a car. I remember uh, somebody told me that when Bob Dylan lived in New York and he was starting to really write because he didn't start out as a songwriter. He started out as, you know, he did everybody else's and, he wasn't his first record is all covers pretty much. And, um, he said he would sit in the back of a cab and tell the driver, just drive, <laughs> drive around New York city, sit in the back with a notepad. My golly, you know, it's just, you know, you can see everything before I let you go. First of all, thank you again for taking the time today. I do this with all my guests and I've done it with Peter Rowan. I, you mentioned hot tuna earlier. I had Yorma on not too long ago. And, and I do this with all of them, just a quick lightning round. I'm going to ask you some questions, try and answer them without thinking too much. Well, I, I, I have a greatest respect for Yorma. He's one of my early heroes uh, from the Jefferson airplane into hot tuna, you know, great That's, guy. He is a great guy. I've gotten the pleasure to play with him. One of the things he said that really struck me was if it wasn't for riding around Santa Bay area in a station wagon with Garcia, he would still be an acoustic player playing folk tunes in a coffee shop that's uh yeah that's that's absolutely right because that's what he was doing and he and i uh went to, he went to antioch college too i uh, he, we talked about that one time he and john john hammond jr too uh john hammond went to antioch and uh uh we're a trio of some of the uh great musicians that dropped out of that school <laughs> <laughs> all right well you already mentioned this one but again your first grateful dead show yeah electric factory 1968 your favorite grateful dead album the, the first one what's it called Doc? Uh, well the the first one that's just called grateful dead yeah yeah right. uh uh your favorite okay this is a tough one if you're on a desert island the one album you can take with you that your favorite 
that your favorite album, any genre, what's the one you're going to live with the rest of your life? You can't do that to me. You can't that's put not, me. You're not allowed, man. You're just I'm sorry. That was it's, a, it's, it's a compilation album, by the way, <laughs> that not, I put together. Yeah. They, they call them mixtapes at back in the 80s. But, Ray's mixtape. All right. Yeah, fair enough, man. It's, fair it's, enough. it's Ray's mixtape. I can tell you who's on it, but not one guy, because if it was one person, you'd wind up hating them. Right. Give me a couple <laughs> who'd be on it. There you go. Hank Williams, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, Bob Wills, Bob, uh, did I say Bob Dylan? The Rolling Stones, um, uh, John Coltrane, uh, uh, um, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, now do the crossroads. Oh, Clapton. No, no, no. The original. Oh, Robert, Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson. Thank yeah. you. Robert Johnson <laughs> and uh, Bobby Blue Bland. All right, if you ever make that tape, will you send me a copy? I have it here in my car right now. <laughs> right um, uh, first job. Uh, I've never, well, oh, for, you know, like, uh, you know, besides cutting lawns and shoveling snow, um, I got out of that by teaching guitar. It was just, a, they said, 50 cents a student and you get five students. I'll do it. So that's uh, great. You I mean, as a grown up, I never had a job. I, I was an apprentice editor uh, for three months in New York City. I was going to be a filmmaker for Eli Landau, who was a legendary producer, made The Long Day's Journey, with did uh, The Pawn Broker, great movie. And uh, so I did have a job. I, I, worked, I got $80 cash a week in New York City in 1969. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite venue to play? Oh, are you kidding me? Jeez, no, Matt, no, that, none of my guests like this, but I do it to them anyway. Uh, that I've played the Greek theater. All right. Best city for a day off. Just depends if I'm hungry or I want to play golf. <laughs> uh, you're a golfer, man. We should, we never even went there for me. It's all about where's my, what's the closest golf course to my city. That's yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. I, was, I played golf yesterday. My, both my sons, my oldest son was a all state, you know, scratch golfer. And my other son is, is about a six, seven handicap. They kill me. And, it's still uh, but other than that san francisco is always fun to run around best thing to do on a day off for me i mean i take my sticks everywhere on the road with us they live on oh, a bus. yeah yeah and, they're on the bus now <laughs> yep mine will be we leave tomorrow to go on tour and mine will be on the bus and as soon as we get our itinerary i start looking where's the days off and where am i playing golf yeah i got very fortunate to have uh played every where yeah, yeah. it's uh, because they say i say i got my days off and my nights i work you know so do you uh do you have to have custom clubs because you're so tall do you have to have them built yeah 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 they're, they're, they're you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh where were we because we I, I could do a golf podcast with musicians and we could talk yeah. golf all day it's it's unbelievable Absolutely. how many of us play golf it really is well yeah you know i become i play golf with alice who's uh, who's a very good golfer yes he is he saved his life yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I've, and I've made incredible friends on the golf course. Obviously we know that. And, uh, you know, I've gotten to play with some of the legends and, and, and some of the great characters and of course, some of the great courses is that's the best part right there. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, I, I learned a long time ago, you know, when we were, when we're on in restaurants or not on stage, I always wore a golf hat. 
and I'd be at dinner and a fan would come up and say, Oh, you're a golfer. I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, I belong to congressional. Can I take you out sometime? I'm yeah. Like, yeah. Yes, exactly. you may. <laughs> right. and, and I've made a lot of good friends with fans of the band just that way, you know? No, it's, it's a, it is a universal and I've got to play in Scotland and everything. So I really enjoy it. I call it my great sanity keeper on the road. Yeah. This, I'm um, getting a little where my body doesn't do anything. So I, 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 the best I ever got was I was a nine handicap and then uh, I'm not, I can't even, I can't, uh, you know, I can break 90 on a very rarely now, but you still enjoy it. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're worried we could, again, golf just gets in the way. Favorite of city, favorite city. Uh, best city for a day off. We got to the golf course. Uh, first car. I, I bought a car for $25. Oh, that was my first one. It was a DeSoto. It was a 1959 DeSoto. Wow. And what you said, you bought a car for $25 at some point. And then I bought a car from a guy, no title, nothing. It was a Peugeot 403, a French car from a friend of mine for 25 bucks, no title. And you could get away with that sort of thing back then. Those are, those are pretty small cars, aren't they? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah Tight fit for you. Well, back then I, yeah, I could fit into anything back then. <laughs> I mean, you just scrunched in, you know. Right, and and my last one, the book you are reading these days. Oh, let's see what's right here. Just finished it, and I loved it. the The Leopard is Loose, a novel by Stephen Harrigan. All it's right, a fabulous story, and he's a great writer here in Austin, Texas. But he's uh, he's well known. Excellent. Well, again, Ray Benson, I can't thank you for taking the time. Hopefully, we're going to get back down to Austin one day, although I have a feeling when we get there, you'll be on the road. Thank you for including me. and uh, It's my pleasure. Right on. All right, that is Ray Benson from Asleep at the Wheel. Take care once again. Thank you so much. You bet. Adios, amigo. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank Ray Benson and Joe Fallhaber one more time. I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Grateful Sweats, The Clean Store, and Beth Koritz at YourClarity.Coach. And of course, the Pantheon Podcast Network for bringing me into their family. You can check out their 70-plus music-related podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription that offers some great bonus content every week where you can show your love with a one-time contribution. And please remember that a portion of every contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. I will be back again in two weeks with episode number 32, where my guest will be the harmonica virtuoso and dead fan Howard Levy. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. The good side of this is getting closer, but it's still going to take all our efforts to truly get there. Thanks for being here.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.